Hey, boys and girls, welcome back to the Making a Scene podcast. My name is John Giuffray. Thank you for joining me today. This is episode four of Making a Scene, a show where I like to talk to unorthodox, unique characters. Really, they're creatives who kind of have found a way towards their own success, the way they define success on their own terms with that sort of unique thing that makes them a standout character. And I try to figure out what is it that makes them so unique, whether that's a unique childhood experience, a mentor, or you know something they discovered along the way, something they learned, and then how they're bringing that to their work and what they uniquely want to accomplish with their work, what kind of scene they want to make, if you will. This is the fourth episode of eight in the COVID series, the COVID sessions. Recorded this in February of 2020. And it was about two or three weeks before, before COVID really kicked off. And um, it, was, it was an absolute joy to record. And I, I went back and listened, listened back over to it before I'm posting it here. And I think there's a lot of really like fun gems in here. And I think part of that is because the person that I'm speaking with in this, in this episode is honestly a really great personal friend of mine. Her name is Kiara Bickers. She's the author of this spectacular book, Bitcoin Clarity. There's her full name, Kiara Bickers. Bitcoin Clarity, A Guide to Understanding. You can find it at getbitcoinclarity.com. It's a great book. I read it. Uh, that was the first book I read during the quarantine. And I learned all about Bitcoin. Problem was, I was poor. Didn't have no money for Bitcoin. Now I do. Rereading it. The only book I will trust on figuring out, understanding Bitcoin on a deep level. And that's really what it's about. A lot of other sort of, you know, uh, people in that, in that space uh, even if they're well-meaning, they're they're offering investment advice. They're trying to tell you what you should do and and the the way you should behave and what's what's a good move and what's not a good move. Kiara's not about any of that. She doesn't give a fuck if you get any Bitcoin. She just wants you to understand it. So she teaches it to you like a system, and then you can make your own decision like an adult. And you can learn to read the markets, and you can learn if you ethically agree with it, or you could become a developer or a Bitcoin. Uh, a focus lawyer or something like that. So that's really what the book is for. The book's for trying to understand things on a deep level. And I think you'll see in this interview that that's what Kiara herself is about. She's a deep thinker. She is, she's an autodidact. She teaches herself a whole bunch of shit. She's always, you know, reading something new or exploring a new skill or a new way of learning things. She's always experimenting on herself. And uh, I think that's part of what I like so much about her and what, and what, makes, uh, what makes the friendship so rewarding. Because I'm the same way. So we're always comparing notes and stuff. Um, I met Kiara originally at an event that I was helping to produce in Chicago, where she was living at the time. And the event was for the first guest that uh, you might have seen on this show, episode one with Elliot Hulse. Another, uh, I think that was a pretty good interview too. You should check it out. Um, we were doing a live event for Elliot and Kiara was attending and she was one of our VIP guests. And so while all of the other attendees of the VIP event were over mobbing Elliot, mobbing the celebrity, trying to talk to him, Kiara was the smart one out of all of them. And she got fucking wine drunk in a hotel with the crew guy <laughs> and um, 
hilarity ensued. It was great. We just talked about like Bitcoin and politics and philosophy, all kinds of shit. And ever since then, we've been collaborating on various projects. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's some of what you can expect in the episode. Um, you might have seen Kiara on the news, perhaps, uh, in 2017, early 2017. And we'll get into that in the interview as well. Before we get into the interview, I do want to take a moment to ask, are you some kind of producer, whether that's on an event production team, film production, are you a craftsman of some sort? Do you make great art? Do you have a camera in your hand frequently? Do you play a musical instrument? Are you a marketer? Do you run Facebook ads for various clients? Do you run Facebook ads for one client and that client might be your boss? Are you a copywriter? Do you make websites? Do you freelance? Are you a content creator? If any of those things come close to describing you in any way, I think that you might benefit from joining my free Facebook group, Artworks. That's A-R-T-W-O-R-K-S with an exclamation point because we're fucking excited about it. You can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash artworks group. A-R-T-W-O-R-K-S-G-R-O-U-P. Facebook.com slash groups slash artworks group. And basically we do two things there. We help uh, uh, freelancers, creatives, content producers, event producers. We help people in that basic creative industry. We help them hone their crafts. We all give feedback on each other's work. We're talking about ways to learn new skills, things like that. We hone our crafts and we hone our careers. We connect each other with, you know, connections to get new gigs, helping each other with sales techniques or how to raise our rates, whatever it is. Our goal is we want the gig economy to work for people and we want to transition it to being more of a partnership economy. We're all in this together. We're not competing over gigs. We're here as partners, as a family and as friends, trying to help each other get better so that there's more dope shit in the world and so that everyone can be doing a job that they fucking love. That's what it's all about. My agency, Logos Productions, will be in there posting job opportunities, gig opportunities, connections. Uh, I like giving the love. I don't care. I'm happy to share my connections and my opportunities and give people a chance. So um, check that out. Facebook.com slash groups slash artworks group. And with all that out of the way, enjoy my interview with Kiara Bickers the author of Bitcoin Clarity. In this episode, I am so happy to be joined by my good friend and also a collaborator and, and a client and just someone who I've, I've gotten to know a bit more over the past year. Um, her name's Kiara Bickers and she is uh, the author of an upcoming book on Bitcoin called Bitcoin Clarity and the accompanying uh, course where you can learn all about how to use Bitcoin in your life. Um, but you might know her from something a little bit different, and that's probably what we're going to uh, jump into first here. But Kiara, um, you are known a little bit more for getting viciously attacked in public, right? That's definitely the case. Yeah, so back in what year was that now? I think it was already 2016, right after Donald Trump was elected. Uh, I was at a Berkeley rally. I think it was mostly for Milo's speech that eventually got shut down. And then my face went viral for getting maced like live on television. That's, that's very fun. So yeah, you were, so it was um, a Milo Yiannopoulos show 
and it was Antifa who was there protesting, right? Or was it just random? It was Antifa, but at the time, the country did not know what Antifa was. Like, no one had heard of Antifa outside of, like, animal rights protests. Um, it, was, it was really the, fir- the country's first experience of Antifa. And then there were many more incidents in, in Berkeley and then Portland and then all over the country. And they do the black block technique where all of them are wearing black. And now it's a word that is used regularly in the news. But when, I, when that happened to me, I remember thinking, oh, the news is going to spin this as if they're all peaceful protesters because that's what they were already starting to do. And then, you know, calling out that narrative before they had it time to like even actually spin it that way, sort of countered it before they were able to throw the punch, so to speak. And then that tweet went viral. So yeah, it was a really interesting time back in 2016. That was like the the opposite of a of like a big break, you know. Like if you're if you're talking to like musicians or a comedian or something, and like say they put out a new song and everyone loves it and it's a big, it, it goes to the top of the charts, it's on the radio, everyone loves it, and they're like an overnight success and they're famous for exactly what they want to be famous for. And yeah. And you, on the other hand, were like, I'm minding my own business. I'm working in the Bitcoin space. And boom, now I'm thrown into the political arena, right? Like, that wasn't... Yeah. It was really weird. because I don't know how much I've ever talked about this. But when it before it happened, I had already given another interview. So I'd given an interview because I was the only one who was really wearing, like, a red hat of any sort, even though it said make Bitcoin great again, not make America great again. Uh, I was being interviewed in part, like... Uh, sort of like debate style with someone else. So they had like a person who looked completely absurd. He was wearing like a like a tall hat, like something like, Abe, like Abraham Lincoln might've worn. And the news was trying to pivot me as the crazy one. So they put me up against another crazy one, right? And there was like all this subtle manipulation going on in the media that I was witnessing. So anyway, I had done, I had done one interview before this interview. And I remember the moment right before I was sort of done talking to the interviewer. I remember thinking, well, I only did this because I'm wearing the Bitcoin hat. This is great publicity for Bitcoin. And like, you know, honestly, fuck this guy because he was the journalist was being so rude to me. He was like, well, why are you here? Basically calling me an evil person just for being there. And yeah, I like looked dead into the camera. And the second I look into the camera was the moment I got maced. It was like, it was just like, it was palpable. Like I, I should have seen in retrospect how I was being targeted for that, but I didn't because I was naive and we were all naive. Like no one, like I said, no one knew who Antifa was. No one knew what black block techniques were. Jesus. So that was, was that before the actual, it was Milo Yiannopoulos giving a talk. Was that before he like got on stage? Was this all pre-show while people were getting in the building or was this outside while it was going on? So he actually didn't end up giving his talk. This was sort of like at the demise of Milo's acceptability in the public sphere. Like Milo was very, very popular when the right was sort of the underdog. The second Donald Trump was actually elected and then, you know, the right sort of came into power. Uh, there was less and less tolerance for the like trolley like behavior. So he never did his speech. So it was before, but there were a ton of things that set up the speech to be violent. Right. Like the fact that the university made it happen at night, the fact that the university didn't set up a perimeter. And these are all things they had to sort of backpedal and change for future speakers. Of course, they do it for Ben Shapiro of all conservative speakers. Right. It's like it's just insult after insult. (laughs) So, okay, And did did you end up um, talking to I know uh, I think it was a few weeks after that there was actually a shooting at a Milo show i went to a milo show in chicago in 2016 or 2015 whenever 
and it was the one at DePaul University. Gotcha. Uh, that was the first one of his that turned into like a semi-violent one and got on the news. But he actually did do the speech. He, he started the speech. So we all got in. There were protests outside, but it wasn't anything like crazy. So we all went in and took our seats. I'm not there because I'm like in love with the guy or in love with Donald Trump or anything. I was just <laughs> unemployed and bored. So I went, I'm like, hey, sounds like something fun will happen. So I went and um, Milo starts talking and the only... I don't remember exactly what he was saying, but I can uh, viscerally remember thinking, I'm like, oh, he's funnier than most of the comedians I know. This is bad. This is bad for us. <laughs> he, he was um, maybe five, maybe 10 minutes into his speech. And then you just start hearing this whistling, this loud, just loud fucking whistling. And it was, uh, I think it was Black Lives Matter showed up and they had like a megahorn and a whistle, and they were blowing the whistle into the megahorn, and it was j just this awful screeching noise. Everyone was getting a headache. It, it hurt our ears, and they run up on stage, and they take the microphone from him, and they, like, kind of punched him in the face, kind of slap. It wasn't a punch. It was, like, a aggressive slap. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So, yeah, the, the I think, I don't remember the order in which all of his events sort of occurred, but I do think that the takedown of Milo publicly happened pretty soon after the Berkeley event. Yeah. Did you did you ever get to um, talk to him? Because like, people also got shot at one of his shows in Seattle, I think, like a week no. after the Berkeley thing. No, I mean, like, maybe it's just like the gay and the lesbian things. I don't think there's like a lot of lesbian and gay cross-communication. <laughs> I think the gays do their things, lesbians do their things. But I mean, yeah, it, it, it might have been an interesting conversation at the time. I mean, he, I think now he's mostly just writing books and like, He's sort of, I, I don't know what he's up to. I don't know what he's doing. Right. Is, is that a real, um, born straight <laughs> guy here. Is that a real thing? The gay, gay people and, and lesbian people aren't? I think it's, it's very much a real thing. Like there's like straight women tend to have their gay friend, but like not, I mean, I have a gay friend, but it's not like, I don't hang out with like gay men in general. Cause it's, it's mostly like, it's the same reason why I don't hang out with like a bunch of, I don't have like a flock of like straight female friends, right? It's like, what are we gonna do? Get our, like do our hair for three hours and like talk about boys. Like it wouldn't, it doesn't work in the same way. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you, if you do want to hear uh, straight girls getting their hair done and talking about boys for three hours, you can check out my girlfriend's podcast. It's called Tongue in Cheek. <laughs> it's very good. Very cute. Um, okay, all right, cool. But yeah. so- so, all right, you, you get viciously attacked. I'm sure it hurts. We don't have to go into the details of that. Um, but overnight, you're all of a sudden, next day, you're on Stephen Molyneux. You're on Jordan Peterson's podcast. You're, I think you did Tim Pool. And then I didn't eventually. Do Jordan you're Peterson, but yeah, I did a, a Tim Pool and a couple different Alex Jones. And really, it was just. Oh, Alex Jones? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was really just a matter of like who was willing to talk about the issue, right? Because the mainstream news was continually trying to spin it as if they, there were peaceful people there. Like even in the interview that I was doing, I was saying like, well, you know, props to people who are doing it nonviolently, but like there are none. You know, like, yeah, okay, the one dude in the back, shout out to that one dude who's, who's being peaceful. But if you're going to a protest at night wearing all black, and you don't sort of understand what the purpose of that is, just for people who aren't aware, it's so that the most radical in the group can commit violence and then they can pull back into the crowd and they're not identifiable. So you're helping, 
you know, potential criminals hide their crime, right? And that's why you get told to wear all black. And that's not a secret among the people who did it. Now, I was naive to that. Um, there were like shields that said like, I think it was like love, not hate or whatever. And they were like beating people with these love, not hate shields. And the whole thing was just super surreal. And really what I took away from it was, yeah, I did do like a podcast circuit at that time. And I could feel that there was like this opportunity to do that all the time. You know, like when you go viral, it's sort of like, oh, do you want to become a talking head now? And I really rejected that because the last thing I wanted to do was become like some sort of professional victim. Right. And like that, I think we met because of uh, your, you work with Elliot Holtz too. And then he sort of has this like mindset aspect to the stuff that he talks about on YouTube. But uh, I really wanted to reject the idea that I was really a victim at all. Like it, it was, I was a victim in one sense, but I did not want that to be my entire public identity. Right. And that I struggled with that a lot. So when after it all happened and the media like circus sort of I, I pushed that away at a certain point because it was, you know, how how often do you want to talk about that event? Like it definitely changed my life forever. Like I don't think I could really ever go to the left again right. just because that was so traumatic in a number of ways. Um, but yeah, I, I needed to do something. It, it's like when you become a martyr. Right? It's like you want to become a martyr for a good reason and feel like you actually did something. All I did was give an interview, right? <laughs> it was, so I felt that there was sort of this like unearned attention and maybe that's just me. Like I'm sure a lot of people would have rolled with it. Um, but I do work in the Bitcoin space and like everyone in the Bitcoin space heard about it because it was a Bitcoin hat. So in addition to doing all this like right wing political interviews, I was also in the Bitcoin space where most people are honestly much more liberal. Uh, I was in California where people are much more liberal. So it put me in an uncomfortable position in my career because I had sort of been outed, not necessarily for being gay, because obviously the left loves that, but it was for being more, uh, more conservative, more on the conservative side. Uh, conservative enough to not be down with social justice tendencies, rules, principles, whatever. So, and did that actually harm your your career at all? I mean, I, I mean, it's debatable. I don't think I would ever be hired at Google or Facebook now. Right? right. Cause it's like, yeah, like I think there's undeniable limitations to my career because of that event. Uh, but I'm not going to cry about that. Right. It's sort of just about like finding your niche. Like luckily I wasn't working at Facebook or Google. I work at a Bitcoin company. Bitcoin people tend to be very libertarian, very free speech. But look, if you look at a more high profile person like uh, Peter Todd, or not Peter Todd, he's a Bitcoiner, sorry, uh, Peter Thiel. Right. So Peter Thiel, he was not only outed, but like they outed his boyfriend or fian I don't know what it was. They outed his partner uh, and he was just like a lawyer who didn't want any attention on him or whatever. So, so this was Gawker who outed him as gay, even though it was sort of known that he was. And his main sticking point with that was it, it diminished his ability to be able to raise funds in the Middle East, right? Like not just millions of dollars, but potentially upwards of millions of dollars was lost because of Gawker, according to him, right? So when you think about it like that, it's like, yeah, the media does way more damage than they intend to, and they have no remorse for it whatsoever. Right. Now, I, I, I know that, because we've talked about it personally a few times, and I know that your, your not exactly favorite hobby in the world is talking about being attacked four years ago on podcasts. <laughs> But the only reason I bring it up is because I'm I'm interested in why you made the choice to not 
because ultimately like you you are kind of going down a bit of a road where you are now making content and you are now putting out a book and you are now putting out a course but it's on something that's completely unrelated like it's almost no, like it's if, um and and pardon this comparison but like if jesus really wanted to just be a carpenter and then like oh stuff went off the rails man like i got famous for this other thing <laughs> <laughs> so like i i guess i'm i'm curious in how you were, you're a normal person working in kind of a niche, interesting, new and evolving industry, sure, but you were a normal person and then this crazy fucking thing happens to you for really no reason and now you have all the attention in the world, you willingly turn it down, what, like, what's your mindset moving forward out of that in terms of how you want to approach this next swing at things being who you really are? Yeah, I mean, the way, so I did one talk at the UC Berkeley campus to like the conservatives there after the whole thing had happened. And the only reason why I had even done the interviews that I did was because in that event, like my friend had his ribs broken and no one would report on that. And it was just this, this, I was coming into contact. How do I put this? I don't, I feel like it was sort of thrust upon me to do something like I, I didn't ask to be like a, some like social media influencer and like try and get Milo's attention. Uh, I was on Twitter. I had like a thousand followers. Like I, I enjoyed being funny and making jokes, but when that event happened, it felt like it felt as if I should do something right. So for a while I was, and I guess it just got like, if you were to look at what happened to Jordan Peterson, right? Like Jordan Peterson had a, a sort of similar scenario, but what he had working for him was he had this breath of work that spoke for itself. Right, you could go on YouTube and you could watch years, which I think most people did when they heard about Jordan Peterson. They're like, well, let me just go watch semester, you know, like the second semester of his like Harvard course on psychology in the Bible from 2012. Right. And then you could watch it and be like, this guy's clearly not a Nazi. And for me, you know, all I had were interviews with people. And that didn't really speak for itself. And all the interviews were sort of damning in a way because it, it was only people on the right who wanted to talk to me. So yeah. I had to pull back from that and say like, what is my life work about? Not just like, what is this moment or what is this year about? And to me, it like, although the politics was really important at the time, like, okay, Donald Trump was already elected. Can I have any influence past that? Probably not, right? So what can I have influence in? Well. It's like less than 5% of Americans probably own cryptocurrency, right? It's like a very, very small percentage. And many would be open to it, but they don't know what it is. So shifting from, you know, talking about politics to getting back into my roots with Bitcoin was I felt that I had more impact there. And, you know, it, it's for, for context, like the idea of the book, because, you know, there's many books written about Bitcoin, but my, my particular insight into why this and what, what I was doing was different is that everyone in the industry is so analytical and they're so left-brained and it makes it really hard for the average person to understand because yeah there are a hundred different people explaining bitcoin but they all do it the exact same way and <laughs> it's like not okay it's like if you have if you're trying to solve everything with logic and reason and you know intellect like if you still have problems understanding bitcoin it's probably because logic isn't the best way to describe it anymore you know, like you probably need something new if people are still not getting it. So that's the approach that I took and why I decided not to talk about politics as much. Just it's purely like, what can you, what can you contribute to? Right. So re real quick, well, you're 
I read part of your book, the earlier drafts, and I can't wait to, you shipped the, um, the actual book to my house in the States and I'm not there right now. So I'm going to get it in a few weeks. But um, from what I remember in the first draft, a huge part of it was using visual or story-based metaphors to explain things through, I guess what you would, you would say is like more right brain faculties so that people kind of get how some of the functions that work in the technology of Bitcoin are similar to these other functions that they experience every day and they just need to see that. And maybe more logical explanations aren't gonna cross that bridge. Yeah, it's not like I don't wanna like demean logic. I think logic is great. Like I, it's, it's just hard to find the right terminology around this. I think that, uh, it can be really hard to understand an intangible thing, right? Like, all, like what we're talking about when we talk about Bitcoin is digital scarcity. Like cryptographers were able to create digital scarcity. And that's really, really hard for people to understand like why, how that works, why that was created. Uh, and everything we use to talk about it is a metaphor. It's an analogy because it's intangible and it's digital, right? Unless you're doing direct zeros and ones, you're, everything you're talking about is just sort of an example. So like in Bitcoin, you're talking about keys and addresses and wallets and blockchain. And like none of those things are real. Like they're not really keys. That's just what they're like. It's not really a wallet. It's just what it's like. And I found that people were having a really hard time getting over not just one of those barriers, but like one after another after another. And then other people were using it to their advantage. So it's like, oh, this new industry that no one understands that makes millions of dollars has all these buzzwords. I can take all those buzzwords and leverage that as pretense for original thought. And now I'm like a social media influencer that's going to start my own altcoin and then you buy into it. And neither of us knows what the fuck we're doing, but I'm extracting resources from you to me. So there's, it was upsetting to me because I saw what was originally such a like, well-intentioned vision of Bitcoin go so awry when everyone wanted to well just make their own altcoin or pump it or like use use the difficulty of understanding bitcoin to their advantage to make their own nefarious sort of scams so that if i could if i could help some people avoid getting scammed that's really the goal of the book it's like what's the minimum viable amount of information you need to to make sense of things like libra coin or like if, if the government were to come up with a blockchain or now Tim Poole and the CEO of Twitter are talking about putting social media on a blockchain, right? And that's touched on a little bit in the book. But if this is really going to be the future, you probably want to understand it because we have an innate bias to just trusting all technology we use. And that really needs to be questioned a little bit more rigorously. Right. Well, like, so when, when people I know ask about the work that, that you do, because um, people in my life has, have met you and, 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 you know, I try to say, do you know when you have to explain how to use email to your grandma? That's kind of Kiara's job, but for everyone in the country, <laughs> and it is a bit harder than email. Um, but like, I, I know how you must feel on a day-to-day -day basis, because like my, my mom is not uh, technologically literate at all i she got her um she got a, an android tablet for christmas like two or three years ago and it's basically a glorified facebook machine for her but she keeps like dropping it or somehow one of the chargers freaking melted into the usb port like i don't know what the hell she's doing so she's on her third tablet and she can't grasp the idea that like her facebook account 
is not the tablet. It's they're di they're di one's a ghost. It's not there. She doesn't one's understand the concept of a server. No, she does. Well, so I thought of how to. I'm like, well, how would Kiara explain this? I'm like, well, she put it in a metaphor. So here's my my attempt at being you at explaining this to my mom. How to log into Facebook, right? I'm like, okay, mom, you know how if you want to open a bank account. And, and all your money's in your bank account. You can access that bank account from any ATM in the whole world, any bank in the world, but you just need your PIN number. If you don't have your PIN number, then you can't get to your money. Sure, you can go to another bank and open up a new bank account, but your money's not gonna be there and you're gonna need a new PIN number. And those two accounts are never gonna, they're never gonna be a thing. They're never gonna be friends. You're never gonna get your old money back. So if you want your old money, you can get it anywhere in the world. You don't have to go to your local bank. Anywhere in the world, you need your PIN number. Same thing with Facebook. Facebook, you have your account, you have your, your password. If you want your friends, you want your conversations, you need that password and you can do anywhere in the world. And she's like, what? <laughs> I just finally broke through. I'm like, yeah, Facebook's like a bank. I got it. Wow. Yeah. It's really hard. It's really hard to, to do this because like when you give someone the example one time and if they start to use that in other scenarios, it gets messy. Right. So it's like in Bitcoin, the concept of an address, like, Oh, I send money to you. So I'm sending money to your address. Right. Right. And like, then all of a sudden, Oh wait, send me my money back. Okay. Send it back to my address. The, addresses don't have return addresses in Bitcoin. <laughs> so like you can massively mess up and like lose a whole bunch of funds because you didn't understand that the, the analogy of a, of an address worked when you send things, but it doesn't work when you return to sender. It's like a drop off mailbox at a post office. Like you, like you just, I pick your box, just put one it in and like, sending shit back there. Yeah. It's a one time, it's a one time location on the blockchain and we're always moving to another location. So you always need a new address every time you send funds from one to another, you don't go backwards, but that's, that's not like a normal address. And that's actually not a, like that term address is inherent in how every, like how everyone explains Bitcoin. Cause that's what they're called in Bitcoin. It's what, it's what everyone calls them. So it's not like wrong to call it an address, but in the early days of Bitcoin, developers were debating what to call it. Some people were saying, oh, it should be called an invoice. And if you bring up all, all these historical references of like the debate as to like, is this an address? Is this a wallet? Is it like when terms were not even defined yet, it, you can understand why certain things were chosen and what the pros and cons were that for that were. Now that kind of nuance is not necessary for everyone. And for those people, uh, I'm making a series of shorter videos that are going to go on YouTube. And like you mentioned, I'm doing the course. So there's a number of challenges in doing what I'm doing in that even though my target audience is less technical and less aware of Bitcoin, it's always the people who are more technical and already aware of Bitcoin that hear me. So like pushing out of that existing bubble and social media into a new one is really more challenging than you'd think. Yeah. Well, so how you said 5% of the country might know of or use some kind of cryptocurrency and Obviously, it's the the ninety five percent that are slowly or more recently. I think most people have heard of it at this point. Right. And I don't. I haven't looked at statistics in in a while, but I'm. It's probably upwards of seventy percent that have heard of it, and then it's probably like below ten percent that have actually bought some at some point. And so, how are you going about positioning yourself to be the person that can talk to these folks? Because there, like you said, there are people who are you know, 
Twitter guru daddy with, with hose in the kiddie pool hanging out with their Lamborghinis <laughs> and they're scamming people. And then yeah. there are people who genuinely know what they're talking about in the dev community, but no one can understand what they're saying. They also don't enjoy talking about, they enjoy coding. It's not like, I shouldn't say they don't enjoy talking to people, but they, you know, people like to do what they're best at. Right. And I think that as someone who's like a little bit more on the creative side, but also really understands the tech, like I work with a lot of the protocol developers of Bitcoin directly, it put me in a unique position to not just be able to understand the protocol, but also explain it. Now, what I'm doing and what I'm working with you on is basically like, how do I, how do I create that history and body of work that someone like Jordan Peterson would have or someone like Elliot Holtz would have? Just so that, you know, the next time I get maced in the face, you know, it's like, you can be like, oh, okay, she's actually a decent person. Let me go watch hours of her content, you know, and it takes, it's hard because with Bitcoin, you can't just pop up a video and write it for three minutes. You have to actually think about what you're saying because there's so many ways to say it wrong. So it's like the content takes so long to make, like the animations take so long to make, the illustrations take so long to make. Writing the book took a year and a half. I wrote... I sketched out every single, like, I didn't want all the images to just be copied from, you know, the Bitcoin wiki because that's what everyone else did. And like, then it's not valuable anymore. Right. So I took all the images and then tried to create my own, tried to make them simpler, tried to make them better mapped to the actual protocol, sketch them all out on note cards, have someone illustrate that. Like the whole damn thing took so freaking long. And I'm finally now in the phase where I'm like, okay, I could talk about this without having to create anymore. You know, like just talking about it is part is now is now the new phase of this mission and um, going from a creator to a marketer is a really sort of weird shift. But I'm trying to make it as seamless as possible by just continuing to create while I am transparent about what it is I'm making. So like, you know, putting everything on YouTube, putting everything on Instagram and yeah, trying to reach out into as many different audiences as possible is the goal right now. Right. So I, I want to hear more about w how difficult it is to transfer from that creative, you know, you're in the studio working on the, the thing, the product, to sharing it with people. Because that, that is a tough transition. That, that's like a whole lifestyle change, really. That's an energy yeah. change. But then I, I also, just to back up for a sec, I want to hear about well, actually, let's let's go with that first, and then I have kind of a, a follow-up question that might take a while. So, repeat that one. Um, more about why it's difficult and what you're learning on this shift from going from the creative product building phase to the marketing and content phase. Yeah. So, when you are in the creative phase, like if you are a creative person and you create anything, whether that's a painting or a book or music, there's a very personal and sort of beautifully private aspect to creating you know it's like you are thinking about the person who's going to consume it but it's not like everyone you're thinking about typically like one or two people maybe personal to you like when I was writing the book I'm like would my best friend who's a preschool teacher understand this would he would this be valuable to him right and uh on a day-to-day -day basis that ends up being like oh I wake up at 6 a.m I write for four hours and then I edit for one and then I'm done right and like it's very much like I was more disciplined when it came to that stuff. When you shift into the marketing phase, it's like we talk about this stuff all the time, but it's like you have to lay out this like war map of everyone you know. And you're like, okay, maybe this person, it's like 
How many degrees of separation would it take for me to get this book into the hands of someone at a major hedge fund? How many books of like, how many degrees of separation would it take for me to get this in the hands of someone who's in the media? And it's all about not just how they hear about it, but like, well, it's not just about what they hear, but who they hear it from. So you're constantly trying to, you know, guerrilla market the thing that you wrote and get it into the right hands. And, you know, there have been some influencers that I send a whole box of books to because it's like they, they actually love it and then end up giving it to their mom and their friend. And, and it's getting to the point now where the book isn't even released on Amazon yet. And I'm getting about an email a day from people. So I sell about a book a day and I get about an email a day from just like random people I don't know who want to talk about Bitcoin. And it's, it's really cool. And eventually that won't scale. Right. But for now I can actually maintain that and like email everyone back. And it's, it's way more social than creating. Cause when you're creating, you're thinking, well, does anyone even give a shit? You know, I hope so. <laughs> and there's an aspect too, when you involve money and business into it, new creations are a baby and they need life support. You know, like they need nurturing because they can't survive on their own. So creating the book for people who are interested in doing this kind of stuff on their own. I mean, I probably put 30,000 bucks into editing, illustration, video editing. And I only learned that recently because I just did my accounting at the end of the year. I didn't, ha I didn't have time to do my accounting throughout the, like every month or every quarter. I just said, I'll figure it out eventually. And like last weekend, I was like, oh wow, I spent $30,000 on doing all of that. So it's a shit ton of money. It's a shit ton of money. Now you can lowball it and, but then you don't get the good, like what, for what I wanted, that was what I needed. And I really did it as pretty much as cheaply as I could afford to, like as much as I could, I was getting deals. Uh, I like the illustrations at a coffee shop. So I like contacted the guy. I start going to his art shows, buy his t-shirt. And by the third time I meet him, I'm like, Hey, do you think you'd want to illustrate my book? <laughs> it's like, he's like, actually, yeah, I'd love to do that. But it, it takes time to get those kind of relationships. Like I reached out to a guy. It, I'm, I'm sure many people have heard of the book principles, but it's, Ray it was, Dalio? yes, Ray Dalio. And when that book came out, everyone was like, wow, this book is amazing. And it's partially amazing because he's amazing, but it's also amazing because the person who put the book together did such a fantastic job. Yeah. The illustrations in the book are killer. They embody exactly what he's trying to communicate. And that's really what I was going for. So I like contacted the guy who made Ray's book and I was like, oh my gosh, maybe he can give me some insight. And it's constantly trying to figure out like who can help you put, like put this shit together, like scrap it together in the best way possible, as fast as possible. But it's been fun and I'm starting to see the returns on that. I think I'll, I'm, I think I might break even on the book. Definitely will make money on the course. Um, and life is long, right? So we'll see when it starts to using the child metaphor, right? We'll see when this kid actually grows up into a functioning adult and can produce something that I can, I can leverage to do something cooler and with Bitcoin. Because just so people understand like how actually like important this is, if you own Bitcoin, there's so many things that you depend on. The most obvious one is just like your wallet. And there was a time where there was a vulnerability in one of the wallets. I don't want to throw them under the bus because it's basically most of them, right? Just like insert random wallet here. But the vulnerability had been disclosed to them so many times and they refused to accept that it was an actual legitimate threat. Someone, we don't know who, but probably someone like North Korea or something like that, exploited this vulnerability such that if you were a user of this wallet, you would get what looked like a, a normal harmless update. Like, hey, do you want to update your wallet? And then like, you know, 
you probably do because everyone's telling you, you should always update. So you update and the very next transaction that you send takes all of your funds and sends them to their wallet. Holy shit. And that happened to hundreds of people. Ooh. And guess what? There's no Bitcoin help desk. Right. There's no government in the world that can get those funds back for you. You could call the police, but if it's North Korea who, who executed the attack, what do you get? You think, you think the CIA is going to get involved on your behalf? Like, I mean, they may be looking into it, bro, but like your funds are gone. Right. And the only people who knew about that were people who happened to be following Bitcoin Reddit at the time that it happened, like at the couple of days that it happened, the wallet, the wallet itself refused to to email people. And we have some statistics about how many people actually reported that to the, to the wallet company or to the wallet developers, less than 10%. And it was all the people who lost a trivial amount of money. So the people who have the most to lose are the people who are the least likely to report that anything had happened. So people who lost millions of dollars didn't even contact them. People who lost $50 did though. And <laughs> it, it's like an insight into why I feel this stuff is so important. It's like, if just because you know about Bitcoin doesn't mean that you're safe, right? There's my, my particular messaging in Bitcoin, I, I think is that I really would like to, freer, to see a freer society. That's what originally got me so excited about Bitcoin. But for the first time in my lifetime, a freer society now means you also have an equal responsibility to accept the, the, the consequences of that freedom. Like if we look at social media, right? Social media is like, oh, you have all this freedom. You can say whatever you want. But influencers rarely have things come back at them for the things that they say, right? It's like we're constantly given, like if you look at the left when politics, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, all they do is say, oh, freedom, that just means more free stuff. There's no responsibility that comes with free college. There's no responsibility that comes with free healthcare. You just deserve it, right? Now, I'm not saying anyone deserves Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is a great opportunity for people who are interested in hedging against the dollar, for people who are interested in you know, trading peer-to-peer -peer without censorship. But that comes with the responsibility to manage your own assets, and I don't take that lightly. It's super difficult, and it's probably not for everyone. It's probably not for people who need instructions on how to use their washing machine, okay? And, you know, like, try and help the people you can and disregard the people you can't. I mean, for if it were my family members, you know, I'd offer to do things for them, but one of my rules is I never tell people to buy Bitcoin. Like, I've made my whole life about Bitcoin, and if that's not, if that's not an example enough for you, then you're not listening, right? I'm never gonna tell my mom, oh, you have to buy Bitcoin. That needs, she needs to see, she needs to just trust me and do it because it's something that makes sense to her. Like, I, I want more capable minds thinking about difficult problems. I don't want people to just blindly trust me. Right. That's not really the culture that we live in, right? Because the more people blindly trust you, then the more following you kind of have from that. Now, if I had, would, do I talk about things like hacks that people are subject to and may not have heard of? Absolutely. But it gets tricky when you tell people what to do. Like you can tell people what to be concerned about, what to be worried about, what should be on their radar, but you can't, in my mind, you shouldn't just tell people directly what to do. Right. Well, that's, that's a huge problem with all kinds of influencers all the time where like, especially if, if you go on the fitness industry, influencers, you know, any, any, any industry where 
some, uh, the, the end customer is insecure about a problem that they might or might not have in their life. And they're comparing themselves to someone who has it. And then they're just like, I need, I need to be that person. And like in the fitness industry, so many people get hurt because they're just following shitty workout advice. That's not necessarily tuned to that. Like the, you know, dude, bro on Twitter doesn't know that you fell when you were seven and you fucked up your ankle and that that manifested into a muscular imbalance up your body. Right. Twitter bro doesn't know that shit. Twitter bro doesn't know that maybe you had an eye surgery when you were a baby and that manifests in an atlas imbalance and that's going, and now you shouldn't bench press or whatever. Right. Like, so there's, that's part of what I appreciate with working about working with you is that you're, you're, you're talking to people who are ready to listen and you're not telling them what to do. But in your book, you're giving them the tools. I mean, the book's called A Guide to Understanding, right? That's the subtitle, Bitcoin Clarity. And it's, it's there to help them understand how everything works. So it's not like, to use a fitness metaphor, you're not giving someone a workout plan. You're telling them how the body works. You're telling them about progressive overload and hormones and, and what organ does what and why these right. muscles are connected. Right. And so from there, you can say, now, if you want to build your own workout plan, here's how I've done mine. And here are the principles I followed. So that's that you right. Can that's a great. That's perfect. Well said. Yeah. I mean, I had a I had a personal trainer who I thought was great for a really long time, and she would tell me that I had this thing called like vagus tendency because the way like my knees were going or whatever. And it turns out she just like read that on Facebook. You know? <laughs> and then I actually went to the doctor, and he's like, "You don't have that. Like, don't be ridiculous. Don't listen to your personal trainer." And she was like doing all these workouts to correct this thing that I didn't have. And I'm like, oh you're just a normal person who thinks that you're in the business of telling people what they should do because that's kind of what personal training is, right? You, people say, I don't want to deal with this. I'm hiring a personal trainer. Tell me what I should do. But I constantly was telling her like, that's not what I wanted. I wanted someone to tell me this is working out this and this muscle, but people, the personal training industry isn't used to that, right? right. That's like, how do you train a personal trainer? I wanted someone to train me to become my own personal trainer. She was training me to be a money-making machine that relied on her, right? So I didn't work for her with, with her for too much longer, but that's just really common in the in the fitness industry. So I think that's a really good analogy. Well, so when you're, I like that that question of like, how do you train someone to be their own personal trainer? Because I think ideally, that's that's what scales, right? When you have you know visionaries who. Um, who are trying to change the world, they can't devote their time to other people always being reliant on them. That's why they make content so that the content can talk all the time while they're doing other shit. That's why they create books or products or, or inventions or businesses or whatever. And when you set out to make the book, when you set out to make the course and, and have this you know, message, this curriculum, I know that you had to go you know, it, it's hard to explain something that you're really good at to someone who knows nothing about it because there's so much stuff that you're doing unconsciously that's just habit to you that you don't even know maybe that needs to be explained. So I know that a large part of your book is the mindset and the accelerated learning and the systems learning approach to it. What got you on that train to be like, okay, I need to get in the head of someone who doesn't know anything that I know and then think of the best way to convey that information 
and then learn how to convey that and have it make sense? Like how do yeah. you think about training? Um, I don't know if this directly answers your question, but it might be interesting to you in that like, I am not, I was never good at traditional education. Like I, I barely eked out of high school, had to do independent study and then tried to do college and just grinded with, and I didn't really care. Like I didn't care about the curriculum. I didn't care about any of it. And it took me until really until I learned about systems thinking to understand why I didn't care. Um, for when I was in community college and I took this one class, it was a calculus class and I, I was terrible at it. Like, but the professor, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being terrible at it because I, I felt that calculus was actually giving me something um, that I didn't know before. Like all of algebra, I didn't understand. And then when you get to calculus, you're like, oh, all that stuff, it does volumes. I get it now. <laughs> and I was like really excited that my whole math career meant something. I was like, oh, I, I can see the world differently now. And I would have dreams about like, uh, like spinning shapes. And I would think about the formula of them. Like my brain was weird. Okay. But Anyway, I was never good at doing the math problems, but I could visualize things really well. And what I really liked about my professor is that he gave an extracurricular course that had nothing to do with like, it was not accredited in any way, right? It was just for fun. And it was all about the history of mathematics and like the sword fights and duels that would happen in order to establish mathematical law. So a formula would be named after someone after some duel. And it was just insane to me. And I was like, wow, I was so drawn to that. And people, like, the room was packed. People would ditch calculus, but in droves, they would pack into this tiny room to listen to his talk. So like two people would think of the same theorem or whatever, and then they'd fight over who gets credit? Yep. Or? yep. or there would be times where there would be like some genius who's on his deathbed and like everything he spoke was like some new mathematical brilliance. So students would crowd around him and they'd fight over who would get to write that for their PhD dissertation. And none of it was their work, right? It was just, and it, he was slowly giving us insights into the way society really worked and has always worked. Whoa. And it, it's like, it was so interesting to me. So that was when I was in my early 20s. And then when you fast forward into me kind of hacking my way into the Bitcoin space by pure just joy, like I was just talking about Bitcoin all the time. I just went to all the meetups. I had a book about like PGP and then someone hired me as an intern. Like I wasn't qualified for anything. I didn't fill any type of qualification, I didn't check any box except maybe a diversity box, you know, and it was like, but still I made it into the industry working with some of the, the actual developers of Bitcoin itself, which people would kill to have that job. So I looked at it and I said, well, why are people not understanding Bitcoin? Why didn't I understand math? Why was I drawn to that class instead of that other class? And when I learned about systems thinking, it all made sense. And it was because it was like, Everything that we do in society, because everyone is analytical and our society is organized analytically, has to do with breaking subjects up into parts, right? So like when you go to college to learn business, you don't really learn business, right? You learn accounting, you learn uh, like leadership skills, you learn speaking skills, you learn how to raise money, but you don't ever learn business because you don't learn like business as an evolving whole or you don't learn how to run one business from a single person you learn about every different aspect of business like from a textbook it's not it's not holistic right, right? watching peter Thiel again who i admire a lot he talks about this and he said that you know because he's a very very intelligent person and much, has way more book smarts than i ever did he said that 
he really believed that, you know, if I just work really hard and I master every single part of the subject, then at some point I'll rise to the top and I will earn the right to criticize the subject. But no, you never do. So he rose to the top. He became the best because he's intelligent and competitive. And then when he got to the top of his discipline, he realized they will kill you for criticizing it. You're not allowed to criticize education. You're not allowed to criticize business or technology or anything you study. And that's what is kind of the pretense as you're fighting up to get to that point. Um, I mean, even the whole like in cryptography, the type of stuff that people do is like, oh, this works academically and may get you tenure and may get you a PhD and may get you a job in the industry, but it'll never have any useful application in real world cryptography. So it's like you have this really weird academic environment where it's like, yeah, there are people who are in the field actually doing real cryptography and sometimes they'll consult someone in academia who's got status and can write the paper because you need that. But then their knowledge is really limited because they don't know how anything works in the real world. <laughs> it's like right. so many of academic, so, so much of the world is broken because of the way, the way we've organized society. It's not like a, to give you an example of what could be right? Instead of what is, I think of like Leonardo da Vinci and most people think of him as this artist. And I use this as an example in the book, but the truth is, is a guy was a brilliant inventor. He invented one of the first ideas of the car and the helicopter and like just invention after invention, his artistic drawings of the human muscular system ended up being the, the first textbooks for anatomy in like medieval times. And it's, he was able to be both an artist and, and an inventor and what we would call sort of like a left brain intellectual. And we don't make room for people in our society like that anymore. Maybe the closest thing is Elon Musk, maybe. So the only way that you can have that privilege in society is you have to be incredibly wealthy. And even he's probably bogged down by running all of his companies, right? Like how much freedom does he have to come up with creative new things and like draw up like new systems, create talked about this on the Joe Rogan podcast that he had an idea for, you know, some helicopter that didn't have propellers or something like essentially like a hovercraft or something like that. But he doesn't have time to dedicate to those things because he's busy running three companies. It's, it's just weird. Like maybe he takes a break to go chill with his friend Joe and smoke a, a blunt, the whole fucking government comes down on him and stock crashes for a day. And it's like, he can't have a life. He probably has to do cost-benefit analysis in his head every time he thinks of a new idea. Yes. He's like, am I maximizing shareholder profits by not thinking about shareholder profits right now? Like, I can't exactly. imagine that life. That is insane. Right. Yeah, and when Da Vinci was doing it, he actually made the car for just some rich person who paid him to do it. They're like, oh, make something cool. And he just, like, was basically sponsored to make bullshit. And then, like, it never actually amounted to anything. But it was not just the first car, but it was, like, the first programmable machine it's super interesting stuff. And, you know, I'm not necessarily suggesting that we should go back in time or anything, but I'm, what I'm trying to do is just get people to understand that the systems that we have are really, really ineffective. <laughs> and like what I want for my life is I want to be able to have room for creativity. Um, and unfortunately that just means that, you know, you have to monetize the things that you've made creatively <laughs> and that is a challenge, but, you know, starting as young as possible, it, you know, it's really easy to like monetize cartoons or something on the internet if you're a good illustrator, but potentially you have to find something that would be of value to other people. Like, and that's, that's always the case, right? Like, what can you create of value? How can you get people to actually pay for that? And is there a market for it? How do you reach that market? 
is, I mean, it, it's better than communism for sure. <laughs> so I'm not like complaining about capitalism. I'm just saying, I'm being realistic about the nature of capitalism. It's something that I think most people just aren't right now. Right. Well, honestly, when, when you were talking about all that, that whole thing, I was like, oh, I'm talking to myself on a video chat right now. That, that's great because <laughs> I, in school, man, I was the same exact way. I hated school, ninth grade, 10th grade. I, I was smart and I could do well enough on the tests and stuff just with my own, you know, thinking about things on the day to not fail and be held back. I never did the homework, cut class all the time, hated it, didn't give a shit. I just wanted to avoid the punishment. And then around the second half of junior year, really getting into senior year, I, I had completed all my like essential required credits. So that was a time when most students were like, I'm going to focus on college applications and like doing, taking 50 study halls or whatever. But for me, I was like, well, maybe I have an opportunity here. And I had some teachers who too, uh, well, four in particular who I really liked. Two of them were music teachers. One was a theater teacher, and then one was an English teacher. But that English teacher especially, I knew that his uh, field of study was philosophy in, in school. And then he got the education degree for his master's so he could get a job because <laughs> have fun with the philosophy degree getting a job. <laughs> and I asked him, I'm like, so why do you teach English and not philosophy? And he said, well, because according to the Department of Education, no one wants to learn philosophy. I said, well, I want to learn philosophy. And he said, okay, twice a week, your whole senior year, show up, read this book over the summer and let's, let's, you know, let's do it. And for that whole year, it was him and I one-on-one, -on -one. we would play chess every day. We would lift weights a few times a week and we would talk mm -hmm. philosophy. Like it was legit. Like we turned that school into fucking Athens. It was like, we play chess, we walk and read books and talk. That's how Aristotle did it. When yeah, exactly. Right. We were straight up the, the Lyceum, man. That's what we were. And around that same time, so obviously philosophy, that's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of European culture and history is thrown in there. And at that same time, since I had all this free time in my schedule and I was just getting into music, in ninth and 10th grade, I was really into uh, just doing drugs. That's what I loved. I loved oh, yeah. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and then around 11th grade, 12th grade, I finally kind of grew the balls to be like, I'm masking that I want to be doing creative stuff here. And so I joined I, theater. I, I started playing music, teaching myself piano. Feel comfortable enough to be honest with yourself about what you wanted. Exactly. Now the drugs didn't necessarily decrease, but now it, it helped for <laughs> something, you know? And so yeah, I, I think young people do drugs really because they don't have a better option. And I think that's an unfortunate, that was why I did drugs when I was younger. It's like, you can't get a job at 16. The entire labor force is against you ever working. Right. Yeah. It's very difficult. No, exactly. And now I finally had a, a proper outlet for that energy because I was going to open mics when I was 15 and 16. I was doing the, the play, doing music. And so because I was so into that, I formed a really good relationship with both of the music teachers in my school, but especially one, her, her name was Rachel, and she was fucking awesome. I had, um, <laughs> I went to her Shout room. Out to Rachel. I have four periods a goddamn day with her. Four periods. I signed up for that much music. I did an independent piano study. I did music history and appreciation. I did music theory, and then I did choir. And what I actually did was I hijacked her whiteboard and I started keeping a tally mark of every class period I spent in her room. And by the end, 
it was at like 900 hours in that room. Wow. And she said, I've spent more time with, with you this year than my own children. I said, oh, well, that's not really my fault, though, is it? You know, <laughs> but, but anyway, my, my point is, is like, and then, you know, so with the music appreciation, we were getting into European culture and history through how the music. It all seemed developed. to blend together. And I started to, yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. That same decade, the philosophers started saying this shit. And then exactly. the musicians and artists started doing this. And I mean, a, a, my only last required class was a European history class, of course. I'm like, oh, wait, and this was going on politically. And then there was this plague that was going on. And, and this right. mention came. And I started to see how it was all the same exact thing. World right. literature, we read European literature. And that was all this. I'm like, oh, it's all connected. So my senior year was... I didn't know this until I was like mostly done with it or even looking back on it, but it was a systems approach to like, you're going to learn that everything is interconnected through the examples of philosophy and music and literature and history. And then right. you get skills out of each of those disciplines and knowledge out of each of those disciplines that you can take to other systems. Cause now that's you know system that's actually is. supposed to do. Right. So you had a successful education by accident. Yeah. Right? But the system isn't designed to produce that for you. And although I'm highly critical of the system we have here in the US, I just have to mention that it's much worse everywhere else. Like in Germany, they decide whether or not you go to college or become a worker. They decide whether or not you learn English by the time you're like 16. And if you are not the type of person who like learns English and goes to college, you have no hope of ever getting any type of job outside of skilled labor. Like, just, like, manual labor bullshit. Wow. And, like, I didn't know that until I heard a podcast where an American married a German, lived there, and then saw it and repeated it to me with his American eyes. Because the Germans don't see it because they don't understand the alternative. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that the U.S. doesn't really care about education. They care about, like, showing that they care about education. It's, like, all a facade. You know, like one time I looked up the statistics of how much better Singapore was at math than the U.S. And, you know, like the IQ isn't much different. So I was like, why are they so much better at math? I looked up the way they teach math. They don't teach you like arithmetic or numbers until you're like nine or 10. Everything before then is word problems. I shit you not, dude. I almost cried because... All it would take is for someone at the top of the education system to change the educational curriculum around math, to pull out the numbers and tell a later date, save it for third or fourth or fifth grade. I remember getting algebra in first grade, but you induce math anxiety, right? That's why people are so bad at math. Now, it's not like that's a secret. You can Google it. Why is everyone else better at math? Why do we suck? The system doesn't change, right? Because the system just keeps on keeping on. You know, pour more money into it. You care about education. <laughs> that's like if you if every kid had to learn basketball and they start when they're five and the first lesson is how to do a slam dunk. <laughs> Bro, <laughs> I, play basketball again. I'm not grown enough for that. I can't do it. Let's start with holding <laughs> the ball. Like what? Right, right. now the, the, the way you learn to play basketball is you learn to fall in love with the game. And we're not taught to fall in love with anything. And it's actually the, the bell system that we have in education system. I learned this when I almost dropped out of high school. It was called Lies My Teacher Told Me. And it was by one of the best, I think it was John Taylor Gatto. Is, I, I think that's the name of the author. But he wrote, he's one world-renowned or country-renowned teacher in New York. And he taught about all the things he taught not directly. 
right? So he's teaching you not to concentrate on what you find passionate about because you're only allowed to concentrate until the bell rings. He's teaching you that you have to obey authority because you have to ask for permission to use the restroom. And it's all these subtle things that are actually more important than the content of the day's lesson. It's the way you teach, the, the medium, right? The medium is the message. We're teaching kids how to be ob obedient workers, to do the minimum, to get the minimum. We're not teaching people to be creative, to be entrepreneurs, to think, to, to question the status quo, because it would make them really difficult to work with. Now, millennials sort of got that, but they kind of got the lazy parts, right? They got the four hour yeah. work week. They got like, oh, I'm entitled to money, but I'm not willing to work. Oh, well, I should just get paid for my passion. It should just come naturally. Like they got all the entitlement and all the ego, but they don't have any of the work ethic that would be required to actually make a more cultured society like probably existed back in the Greek days. But yeah, I mean, I don't know where you even start with that stuff. Like I've thought about trying to find Betsy Davos and like trying to like corner her in an event, like, cause it's public where all the events that she goes to. But yeah, I don't even know how much control she actually has. So it goes back to what I said about Peter Thiel. It's like, how far in the system do you have to rise up before you can criticize the system? Potentially that's becoming the president, right? You become the president and you think you can change everything, but the system still fights back. It's like, he thinks he can drain the swamp, but his administration is the swamp. His, his, the leader of every part of his organization is a swamp and he's only one guy. And then it's like, you have to work with the swamp to combat the swamp. Like it's way harder than any of us really understand. So when I criticize something, I'm like, I have to give the opposite approach too, because it's like, these things are complicated. Well, like, I know that, that my, what was so interesting about like my time in school is that I had the both and the really negative time, A, I was also a piece of shit, but it was kind of sort of because I was 12 and 13, the job of the older people in the room to help me want to not be a piece of shit. And no one was doing that. And right. so I saw no value in anything. Right. Now, looking back, I'm less of a piece of shit now. And I look back and I see like, okay, maybe it was 5% more valuable than I thought it was, but it still sucks. <laughs> the default system is, is just not what it could be. And by, you know, that later time in my life, I was, the later time in my life when I was 17, <laughs> I felt like it was self-directed. It was me working with like four people. There were four people in that system. It was a closed loop. It was, hey, when you get an off period and I get an off period and the people who are in charge aren't bossing us around, let's meet up, yep. and just do stuff that we want to do. And then you get to get your, hey, my career actually means something now vibes out of it. And I get to hopefully build a future. It'll be great. And so <laughs> like. That was nice, but when you look at making the whole system that, because I've talked to those teachers about, like, how can you do that? And I'm like, how could you give that one-on-one -on -one attention to, and my school was small. We have 400 people. No, 300 people. And they're like, yeah, we can't fucking do that. There's no way. And most of the kids, yeah. they think, wouldn't appreciate it anyway. But when I, when I look at it, I'm like, maybe the only way to change the system at all is like from a far left grassroots, completely different thing where it's like, what if parents started telling their kids to look for opportunities with teachers about how to do this other stuff? But I don't even know if that's scalable or if the system is built to hold that. And, and more broadly, because we're going down a whole rabbit hole here, 
that whole you're learning to fall in love with the game you're learning to fall in love with the process and follow your what you're interested in and really get individual attention and individual work i i want to know how it was that passion that brought you into bitcoin and you love that and you love learning it and you love being about it how are you hoping to make sure that your course and your book is conveying that love of it to people or that you're building that environment for people where they can really kind of flourish? Yeah, actually, one of the emails that I have to respond to today is actually sort of about that is uh, the idea that this guy is a embedded systems engineer, works at Google and like, you know, kind of asking like what he could do to contribute to Bitcoin. And his exact question when I was like, well, you can work on hardware, you know, you do hardware wallets, you know, it's sort of like the obvious answer, like oh, wallets suck, build a better wallet. Um, he's like, no, but like, how do you make people care about Bitcoin? And I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> like, I just don't like I, the, because it might be interesting. The reason why I was interested in Bitcoin is because like it, to go step by step in this, I was really interested in economics and this, I was doing independent study at the time. So I wasn't, I wasn't told what to read. I just pursued what was interesting. And then the, they allowed that to fulfill the credit. Right. So I was like, okay, I'm interested in economics that fulfilled like an English credit for some reason. So I was reading all these books about economics and subtly I had been taught to that socialism was good and capitalism was bad. No one ever said that outright. But that's what I learned in school. And I hadn't articulated it yet. That's just what I learned. I knew that that's what I had learned learned when I read all about capitalism on my own. And I said, holy shit, I think I might be a capitalist. Am I a racist? Right. That was the automatic thinking in my head. Wow. I associated capitalism with racism Whoa. and I was about 16 at the time. So I was like, that's not right. There's something about that isn't right because I had a definition of racism in my mind already that said, you know, it's an irrational hatred for someone of the other race. What I saw capitalism doing was lifting people out of poverty, but not equally, right? Like people from England were raised out of poverty faster than people from India, right? And it, that was so extreme that on the boats to and from India, the, the British people got the side that was shaded and the Indian people got the side that had sun on it, but they both benefited. It was, and because I was mixed race, I saw the effects of colonialism. My mother is Filipino and that country was colonized for hundreds of years. And I saw the effects of colonialism, i.e. people higher than you up on the dominance hierarchy and being a different skin color, different race. It does affect the country. Like it's, it's, not, it's not no effect, right? It's, it has some effect. And the, the, what I really took out of it is I was so driven by that question that I had to pursue it more. Right. So I researched more about capitalism, more about economics. And then I started reading books about lies my teacher told me. And this was like, I learned that there were people that came to America before the Brits, but for some reason, the Brit narrative is the one that they put in the textbooks. Like Africans came to California before, but they don't, because they don't know how they did it. They don't document it. They don't have the boat. So they said, Oh, it must not have happened, but there's like DNA evidence and that's not taught in schools. Yeah. So like they're around, around what year did they, like no earlier. No idea. Again, this was like 16 when I read this book, but I do remember the book and it was a fantastic read. And I was just starting to accumulate, oh, like adults, especially my teachers, don't always know what they're talking about. Or maybe they're trying to signal to me something. Like I had a history teacher who was teaching uh, American history and he would always emphasize 
a point in history where he said, okay, the Democrats who did slavery are not the same Democrats that exist now. And he would hit that. They're all dead. Well, no one's the same, right? Like, why would you? The party switch. She was basically making the claim that the the party that was evil before is now the good party now. And he didn't. I got that too. And he didn't really believe it, but he said it in a way that he showed he didn't believe it. Like he was trying to tell us something, like a like a slave that couldn't communicate the truth and was trying to do it with his body. And I, it wasn't until I, I read more on my own that I was able to go back to those memories and be like, holy shit, adults were trying to tell me this the whole time, but they couldn't because they had their hands tied with what they were allowed to teach me. I mean, George Bush wanted every teacher to have to read a script. Like, we are not fully aware of how much t- teachers' hands are tied to the curriculum they have to teach. Right. Well, I remember, um, this is so funny, in more high school stories i i managed to bs my way into all the honor classes which were the classes where the teachers felt they could they could let it loose a little bit because they're like they got it okay they're the honor kids they made it they're out of here (laughs) shit all right it's the it's the college prep kids and the kids selling drugs in the bathroom that maybe we need to be a bit more on book with and so the honor students were were the the um the battlefield for a narrative warfare between the history teacher who is, who is doing U.S. civics and U.S. history and then the American literature teacher, okay? The history teacher, definitely just straight Republican, very blue-collar dude, awesome guy, cool guy, um, very partisan Republican. The, uh, the, the American lit teacher, definitely a partisan Democrat. He was, uh, he was gay dude. He was up in the teachers union and, and right. So it was just like clash of worlds. There was a generational difference as well. And in, uh, in the U S history class where we're learning about, you know, how great the roaring twenties were and all of the people that were coming um, out of poverty post depression and, and right. all of the new inventions we're reading the great Gatsby and how and it's being good. we like that. <laughs> right. And it's like, it's these two different things. And that was good for us because it made us think about stuff. But then the teachers would throw their opinions in there. And what would happen is, like, one girl would raise her hand and be like, well, in, in literature class, we learned that, you know, there was this problem with, you know, the, the, the black people weren't treated fairly with this specific part and that that's the whole thing. So what's going on here in the history? And the history teacher would be like, you go tell Steve. <laughs> You can go tell Steve that if he don't like it here, he can, Canada's close. He could drive up there. Ideological warfare. Yeah, we weren't allowed to have that in California. It was much more subvert. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's freaking nuts. Like, and then we go back to the English class and the same girl would be like, hey, Dave said that, <laughs> that you know, you can go to Canada. He says, well, tell him that he is suffering from straight privilege. And it's like, whoa, what's wow. happening? It was just an insane clown world. Even yeah. No, I mean, I don't know where you, what, what state did you go to school in? Uh, Connecticut. Okay. Yeah. In California, because everyone was liberal, it had to be way more subtle. Yeah, we were, Connecticut's a blue state, but we were in a purple town where it was like pretty much divided by what your job and income level was. You'd either be red or blue. And, but what was cool about it though, is we had a very specific environment, which is why I'm so big on the individual things. It's like the systems are important and you need to learn how to maybe change them 
but nothing can replace the complexity and the context of like individual human beings. We had an individual principal who was the coolest dude ever. His name was Rob. I won't, maybe won't say his last name, but he he was a he was a magician. Okay, and mm. I mean that literally. Like he performed magic tricks. <laughs> like he would open for bands at local rock clubs doing yeah. magic comedy. And it's gotta be cool with the kids. Dude, he was the best. He was the coolest dude ever. And so he had a really laid back environment. We had a very small school. It was a politically mixed town, but culturally we were all kind of the same. So it created this environment where you could kind of, uh, like I, I picture it's like a happy skate punk song is just the whole town forever, the whole time. Until the system ended up stepping in because after Sandy Hook, sure. Oh. In Connecticut, right? It was 20 minutes down the freaking road. Everyone the book. From the book, new security systems, alumni couldn't come visit the school, kids couldn't, like, I was staying after school lifting weights and playing piano and doing my homework because I didn't want to go home because mom was drunk. And the teachers were like, we want you to stay here doing this because great, but you're not allowed to anymore and I'm like do you want me to go downtown and pick up a drug habit they're like well we think we already <laughs> do so why don't you just you know double down yeah. on that. so it, it became this really rigid yeah. systematized thing and and I get uh, you know we're, we're going I think the what to circle back to the idea of like because this the, the big theme here has been education I'm educating people on bitcoin right but why I chose that I saw all the flaws of our existing education system. And I think my experience is probably more aligned with the way your school was after Sandy Hook. Yeah. I think my entire school system was like that. I never had, apart from independent study, I never had an environment where they like encouraged me to stay. In fact, I was told not to come to class anymore because I was asking too many questions. In English, in high school, they told me don't <laughs> This is like, yeah, so I developed a drug habit, just like you, right? I, I would yeah. not come to English and I would go do drugs. And then eventually I was like, well, why even bother going to class when I have to leave and come back and like, you know, build my social life around or my education around not going to English. I'll just skip all of school. And then at the same time, I think it was Kamala Harris who was in office and my mom got one of those truancy letters that she was so famous for. So they put my mom in jail. That's real? That was real. That was real. Now, I don't know if she was the one who was in charge of that, but I know for certain that my parents got that letter. And it was a big deal. It was like, cause you know, my mom didn't care whether or not I went to school, but she cared whether or not she went to jail. So it, it was effective. <laughs> yeah. So that was real. If kids miss too many days of school, their parents were threatened with jail. Yeah. And obviously they weren't actually going to go to jail. Like it was a ridiculous threat, but like my mom would take time off work to drive me to school and then she'd like try to get me to go. But like, you know, typical single mother household, like I was, I was fighting. Like, I, I did not want to learn bullshit around people who did not care about me. Like, I didn't care about the system. I didn't care about the school. And through drugs, I did find, unfortunately, a more creative and intellectual space. Like, I knew people who were studying chemistry because they were fascinated with drugs. And at the time in California, there was a whole movement around, like, it wasn't the 60s, but it was like, it was it wasn't like street drug culture it was sort of like a more elevated uc berkeley synthesis laboratory culture now i wouldn't recommend that for other people but it it was interesting to me and it pushed me through 
deciding to study a whole bunch of chemistry, deciding to study a whole bunch of biology uh, that I probably wouldn't have done if I wasn't pursuing, you know, like it, trying to test consciousness through, <laughs> through psychedelic drugs. I mean, experimenting with the limits of consciousness was way more interesting than being told I was a hateful, evil person in English, you know? And, and it turns yeah. out I wrote a book, right? So like how right was that woman that I ended up love, I love writing now. I, writing is my primary form of communication. And, you know, I did not learn that in school. So that's just an example of how broken the systems are. I think people who actually succeed in the systems are kind of broken themselves too. Because ha it has to beat you down in order to get out of it okay. Yeah, yeah. So what I really like doing with, you know, I said it at the beginning of the show, but you're a collaborator and client of mine at, at Logos Productions. And at Logos Productions, I like to say that we help visionaries craft the future. So we could just be like a normal social media marketing agency and walk up and down the street and find every, you know, uh, sushi restaurant that doesn't have a TikTok account and, and charge them $2,000. But we're not going to do that. What we want is to work with people who are, they don't have to be, you know, they don't have to be massively famous. They don't have to be completely anonymous. It's anywhere on the spectrum of wherever you're at. We want to work with people who have unique visions of the future and then a unique value proposition to help people now become part of that future and then we want to support them creatively however we can so just you know short pitch no that's that's amazing and just so you're aware too like i talk to people about uh working on their social media stuff and i specifically i was just doing a podcast called um uncensored and it's done by my friend carter he was telling me that he wants someone to do all of his instagram videos and do his editing stuff he wants to work with someone who's ideologically aligned Right. Cause he doesn't want to be told on the podcast. This is amazing. Go me. Yeah. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be told that he's a terrible person or have someone sabotage his work because they don't agree with the message. Right. And that's actually a legitimate problem in this space. Right. And what the service you're providing is hugely beneficial for people like me because I, I can, I can riff with you and I can go back and forth with you about creative ideas and we share the same vision, which is everything in marketing. It's everything in media, right? Like if, if you didn't share the same vision, I don't know how we could possibly collaborate. Now, the, the problem is, is like, you're but the only- I have to tell you, I think Bitcoin's for losers. I think now's a good time to let you know. <laughs> well, you know, if you're driving the Lambo and telling me to binary trade, it might be. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I, think it's, I think it's great that you guys are offering this as a service and I hope that more people uh, understand exactly what it is you're doing and that you can reach more people and help more people in, in our niche, uh, get their messaging out there sort of as a, as a unit. Well, thank you. That wasn't even, I guess, I guess it, when I listen back to it, I'll be like, maybe that was fishing for compliments. That was very nice of you to say, but that we're, no. and I appreciate it. And, and what <laughs> I, but what I wanted to, in that spirit, what's your vision for the future and how can other people like you who are like the mainstream is fine, but it's not, what it could be and i want to build something different i want to be part of a community uh, that's more on you know teetering on the edge but we want to bring what's on the edge here so that everyone can can be bettered by it if there's like a younger visionary or anyone who's who's out there that wants to do something creative like that what's i guess what future would you invite them to help you create or how how would you uh, talk to them about building that future for themselves yeah, I mean, the way that I would phrase it is your values are built into everything you create. 
right? Implicitly or implicitly, like whether you are aware of it or not, everything you put your work into is going to have your, your values embodied in that. And you have to be very aware of what it is you're good at, what it is you're not good at. Be honest with yourself about that. Like if I thought I was a shitty writer, I wouldn't write a book, right? If I thought I was a shitty programmer, I wouldn't be writing programming. Once you understand what you're best at and you know what your values are, which probably takes your whole 20s, like that whole decade is figuring that shit out. You're developing skills. While you're developing skills, you're trying to figure out like, what do I care about? Right. Because once you're an excellent programmer, once you're an excellent writer, you have to push that towards something. And the envision that I would like to see built with Bitcoin is very much a cypherpunk one. Now, people probably don't even know what the term cypherpunk is, but I talk about this a little bit in my book, but the term smart contracts has been totally hijacked in the cryptocurrency space. But what it meant originally when the first person, Nick Zabo is his name, the first person ever theorized or wrote about the idea of smart contracts is what he wanted to do was bridge the gap between the physical and the digital world, right? So the, whoever created Bitcoin, you know, we know it's this guy named Satoshi. Could have, it could have been a team. We could have been one individual. We don't know, right? But whatever, what Satoshi did is he was able to create scarcity that's, it is embodied in all energy and all physical matter. There's scarcity, right? And he put that into, into a digitalized form using cryptography. That took a massive amount of creativity. It's something that not only people, like people wanted it, but no one thought it was possible. Now, what the next iteration of that is in cryptocurrency, I don't know, right? So for me, I'm like, how do I think about, you know, maybe it's in, maybe for me, it'll be through fiction about how I lay out other ways society could be organized. Uh, maybe that's, maybe that's the path that's right for me, but the path that's right for other people is not going to be exactly that. And our, our values are not going to be exactly that. So, you know, what I would say is if you care about personal responsibility, if you care about individual freedom, I would consider looking at Bitcoin as something that might be interesting. And then I would consider, you know, challenging your values and really hardening them and figuring out what's the best way for you to express those values and whatever it is you decide to create. And for you, that's video editing, right? It's, it's, it's branding, it's building people, it's building that future through pulling up the people who you think, whose, whose values you align with enough. <laughs> Right. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it's enough. I love it. That's awesome. Well, okay, we've we've gone for about an hour and a half here, so I guess uh, we. I think that's all the time that, that you had booked out. I could. We should definitely do this again. I could go on for hours more, but um, I want to quickly ask you. You um, contributed to a digital conference that uh, that I I helped produce called IonCon. Yeah. Save the world on that. We're getting very lofty today. Um, but you contributed a talk with a good friend of mine who's named Ross Kennedy, goes by uh, the Huntsman. Um, what was your talk uh, about, briefly? People our talk? Uh, gosh, it was a while ago already. Um, I believe our focus was more about the economy. And because that was also his area of expertise. Right. So we were talking about, um, you know, sort of there's different layers to the economy and it gets more and more complicated as you move up. But once you start to, to pull back the curtain on, on the way that shit's actually managed, you know, how the federal reserve is trying to stop the next recession, the next depression from happening. And you, we're talking about how many different levers you could possibly pull and are they out of options? Like when you're running a business too, you're trying to figure out, or not just running a business when you're managing wealth, whether that's somebody else's wealth or your own, you're trying to figure out, 
what is the future going to look like so I can best prepare and have my, my, my value basically dispersed through the proper resources that don't get leveled, right? So we were talking about how Bitcoin could potentially be useful to more normies, I guess, so to speak, and or people who are just interested in economics. Like, there's a lot of different ways to become interested in Bitcoin. You could become interested because it's a political thing. You could become interested because of coding, because of cryptography, or because of economics, or like libertarianism, or right-wing stuff, or left-wing stuff. Like, there's so many different reasons that someone would be interested in Bitcoin, and like, I use that as the gateway drug, and then I make the conversation about that. So we primarily talked about stuff like commodities he was like he knew some he knew some random stuff about the economy and and and, the, and corn and like land subsidies that i was totally unaware of yeah i got I, the I, price I, of I, corn I actually corn. changed the value of land like it was absurd stuff that I, I i didn't know because i was never a farmer in the middle of the country yeah yeah well i i could tell you a bit more about about that after um we're done recording here but everyone should well Maybe not everyone, but if you're listening to this, chances are you would highly enjoy the uh, the package, uh, the the event. We're selling the recordings of it um, that Kiara contributed to. Uh, there are like 30 different talks, and honestly, I think you know they're all on different subjects. We have how you know learning about the economy goes into Bitcoin, into improving your personal life. We have everything from. Uh, we have linguists, we have doctors, we have therapists, we have philosophers, we have all kinds of crazy people. I did some cool interviews with um, one guy who's going to be on this show very soon, Mark Quepet, who's who goes by Universal Man. And basically, we lined up, he's an addiction healing specialist. So he helps people not just heal their addictions, but then also replace them with positive attributes you can go from a net drain on society mm -hmm. in your life to a net positive and we laid out like in one hour a straight up step-by-step -step game plan that's based on principles that you can individualize to your own circumstances and it's the whole talk is is just brilliant the whole conversation um conference is brilliant kiara was in it it's great so i will put a link to that in the description but otherwise aside from that what's next for you when's it happening where can people find you so you can go to getbitcoinclarity.com. You can follow me on any of my social media sites would be my, just my full name. Kiara Bicker is on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, or whatever. Like I mentioned, I'm going to start animating the illustrations from the book um, to make that more like viral, more consumable, like smaller pieces of content. I think what's next for me is after I maybe spend a year marketing this book, talking about this book, I'll probably shift into to writing my next book, which is going to be Crypto Chaos. So this book is very Bitcoin focused. The next book is going to be about all the different things in cryptocurrencies that have tried and failed or tried and succeeded. So like we're going to be talking about like Litecoin and Ethereum and Feathercoin shit you've never heard of because they're already dead and there's no record of it online other than in like my own memory, right? It's like really just like historical documentation and then my own judgment and, and analysis of, of the crypto space and maybe how you look at potential blockchains in the future. After that, I'll probably write fiction. So I think I want to get all this crypto shit out of my system before I get into the real work of, of writing some deep fiction, but some dystopian. But until then, yeah, it's still going to be Bitcoin all the time for the next year, year or two at least. And if someone wants to learn about Bitcoin, they go to get Bitcoin Clarity. You know, how do they know if they're, because you have a course available there and, and full disclosure, I help with the video editing of it and the marketing of it. But who is, um, 
so so my answer to this would be if you exist and have money please go there and buy it because it helps me and, and I, I love when people help me but if we're being honest to people if you go and get Bitcoin Clarity, how does someone know that that course might be right for them or what can they expect? Sure, sure. Talk more about the course is what you're saying. Yeah. So I push harder on the messaging in the book, but the, the, what, what people who are more serious about learning are doing are they're buying the course, right? So the type of person who buys the course is typically a person who wants to get into cryptocurrency and make it more a part of their either investment portfolio or of their like long-term wealth management lifestyle, right? So someone who doesn't want to just uh, read a book, they want to actually be in it and understand it at a deep level, like the, the level that maybe you could even speak to developers and they would understand, you know, you would, you would understand what it is they're developing and what they're talking about. Someone who maybe is thinking about working in this space or developing something in this space, contributing to this space in some way. Um, those are the people who are buying the course and it's, like the reason why I made it is because there's so much noise in the internet today. And you know, it's, it's definitely something different, but it's hard to, you know, short of saying who's, who's consuming it and who's interested in it. It's really for people who want something like can't like access direct access to someone who can help you understand these concepts one-on-one -on -one, rather than just like taking the book home, buying the book, reading the book, and maybe throwing it on yourself before finishing it. The goal with the course is that I can help you one-on-one. -on -one. That's really the goal. And John, as you mentioned, you, you helped edit those videos and, you know, painstakingly have you read the first few editions of the book. You've watched the first few drafts of the course. We've watched, we've done parts of the course and trashed the whole thing and then started over. So it's been like a long time in the making, which I can understand. Like, thank you for pushing it because I haven't been. <laughs> it's like, you're like, hey, what about that thing I worked on for two months? No, no, it's been, honestly, it's been so much fun because one of the perks of doing what I do is that because I don't, you know, my niche isn't, like I said, helping sushi restaurants master TikTok for their business. My niche is like going all over the place and finding whoever people are that are going against the stream of their industry and, and figuring out what needs to be done for them in their circumstance. So as a result, I get to learn all kinds of crazy shit from everyone. And that's, it's honestly, yeah. I love, you know, working on it and working with you on it. So. And I love talking to you today. So thanks for coming on, Kiara. Thanks a bunch. We can end on that note and I'll just do a little fist bump. That was one hell of an episode. Man, I, uh, I want to thank you guys for listening to that or fast forwarding to my beautiful head. This hat is a little too small for me, but my, my girlfriend brought it for me and I quite like it. And I think, I think I kind of look a little bit like Ash Ketchum. I feel dapper. I enjoy it. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I hope you got value out of that. Uh, it was a joy talking to Kiara, and I'm sure we're going to do, do that again real soon. Um, definitely check out her book. Definitely, if you're interested, not just in Bitcoin, you can get the book, Bitcoin Clarity, A Guide to Understanding, at getbitcoinclarity.com. But here's the thing. You might be thinking, John, I don't give a fuck about Bitcoin. I don't want to invest in that. I don't want to invest in weird digital fake money. Well, whatever. Good for you. I'd argue it's not that. But here's the thing. This book is amazing for you, even if you don't want to get into Bitcoin. Um, there was a point in chapter two or three where there was just one sentence. There was one simple sentence. Kiara was defining a term, the difference between um, um, fractional reserve 
and zero reserve banking and full reserve banking or reserve banking. And just one sentence that made me understand everything about like the 2008 financial crisis, our current coronavirus bailout. Um, there's a section in the book about systems thinking that is applicable to anything, whether it's Bitcoin or philosophy or music or, or fucking learning to be a competitive you know, gamer or whatever, right? Esports. Uh, it's it's applicable to everything systems thinking. So I, I think even if you're not into Bitcoin, if you enjoyed the previous conversation, uh, you'll definitely enjoy the book to some degree. Um, anyways, you can find that at getbitcoinclarity.com. Go support Kiara. And again, if you want to support the show, here's what I got for you. Here's what I got. If you're listening to this, there's a strong chance that you might be some kind of creative some kind of freelancer, a producer, someone who does creative things for people. And you do it because you love it and you do it because you want more good things to exist in the world. And if that sounds anything like you, you should join my free Facebook group, Artworks, at facebook.com slash groups slash artworks group, A-R-T-W-O-R-K-S-G-R-O-U-P. Why should you join it? Well, we're doing two things in there, two fucking things. The first thing is we are helping all the aforementioned people hone their crafts. We're giving feedback on your own work, on things you're submitting to clients, feedback on your, your reel, your portfolio, your website, whatever it is, talking about learning new skills, book recommendations, all that shit. And then two, we're honing our careers. We're giving each other connections. We're helping each other out. We are helping each other learn sales tactics, how to raise your rates, uh, resources on managing your money, whatever it is. We want to hone our careers and we want to hone our crafts so that we, the producers of good shit in our gig economy, can make enough good shit that we have the leverage to transition to being a partnership economy where we are, you know, all in it together. We're not competing each other to death. We're not some fucking roving gang of people on Fiverr accepting shit pay to do work that's going to make other people a lot of money. But we are making beautiful things for people who value that work and putting more good things out into the money and helping everyone get paid and everyone live the life and the career that they want to live. That's what we're doing in Artworks. So if you're interested, please come join facebook.com slash groups slash A-R-T W-O-R-K-S-G-R-O-U-P. That's facebook.com slash group slash artworks group. Holy shit, hit the subscribe button. Hit the fucking bell if you're on YouTube. If you're on Spotify, if you're on iTunes, subscribe to the show. Get the latest episodes. This was episode four of the COVID sessions. We got four left of these pre-recorded interviews. All the new ones coming out are gonna be fun. I cannot wait to share the new ones with you, but we gotta get through the old ones first. We're going through them quick. And then we're just gonna keep this fucking party going. Anyways, that's enough of me. Thank you guys for tuning in. Have a fantastic day, night, evening, afternoon, morning. Bye.